The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Doing Good well. Good to see you. Yes, Father. It's uh, great to be here. We have a, uh, a full slate for tonight, multiple topics that we wanted to get into. We have several viewer questions, but also some uh, some topical things that we'd like to touch upon. Um, just to kind of run down through the list of some of these, we, we had a question um, <clears throat> about an alleged theft of some of the Society of St. Pius X churches by, by yourself and the Society of St. Pius V priest. Uh, we had some um, some some kind of more topical events concerning uh, the the supposed traditional Catholic author Charles Colomb and some of his uh, occult affiliation that is coming to the forefront. Um, uh, also, a, a a question about uh, the Gnostic Bishop Stephen Hewler um, and his affiliation with the Saint Benedict Center. Also, uh, we celebrate today, Father, the, the feast day of Saint Hermenegild, and uh, we had a question concerning him. But if we could start at the beginning here with this, this viewer, um, we, we've had this topic for a while that, that we wanted to touch upon and, and clear up, but if I could just read the email from the viewer, she says that, I was told by an SSPX priest that Father Jenkins, along with a few other SSPV priests, stole the SSPX churches when they broke away. I was so upset to hear this, but I would like clarification. So please, Father Jenkins, can you clarify concerning this matter? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, yes, I can, Tom. Uh, and I can because I was there uh, directly concerned with this whole event. Um, as the author of the question says, when we broke away from the society, actually, uh, that is not accurate either. Really? But what uh, the writer is referring to is um, a series of events that took place back in 1983, a long time ago, but still uh, with a lot of practical consequences even to this day. Um, you see, at, the, at that time, a number of the priests, all of us, uh, members of the Society of St. Pius X, and ordained by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, God rest his soul, uh, wrote a letter to the Archbishop. And we wrote a letter to uh, Monsieur Lefebvre, respectfully, I believe, uh, voicing some of our very serious concerns. I wouldn't uh, necessarily even say they were couched in the in the terms of objections, but they were definitely concerns we had about uh, directions that the Society of St. Pius X was taking even then. We raised uh, initially six concerns and then actually added a seventh concern also. Uh, concerns such as the Society of St. Pius X's willingness to accept Novus Ordo marriage annulments which we found very, very dubious mm -hmm. and unacceptable 
um, and uh, even priests being uh, uh, introduced into the chapels of the Society of St. Pius X in certain areas, and we had no idea whether they were ordained or how they were ordained. Um, um, and some of them uh, definitely being ordained in the, in the Novus Ordo and only in the Novus Ordo. Not conditionally ordained. Not conditionally ordained, traditional. And some, we don't even know if they were ordained in the Novus Ordo, let alone. Some were uh, just out and out schismatics, members of schismatic churches, you know, who were uh, being allowed to come in by certain personages in the society and to actually um, offer masses for the people and so on. So, uh, this was very problematic, and seemingly, uh, but to us, it seemed to be totally contrary to the whole purpose for which the society right. was founded by Monsieur Lefebvre. And uh, we couldn't believe that Monsieur Lefebvre himself supported this or uh, agreed with it. So we brought it to his attention. As I said, there was a seventh issue that was added to uh, very shortly thereafter, and that was had to do with uh, the incorporations. You see, it was really up to us to incorporate here in the States uh, to um, have uh, non-profit religious corporations um, own title to property. Of course, we didn't have property titled in our own names, but uh, we had to sign on as members of the boards of directors and incorporators. And... Um, these corporations had to have bylaws. They had to, articles of incorporation, of course, and had to have bylaws. And we we noticed that the articles of incorporation that were kind of provided for us uh, did not uh, forbid the saying of the new mass in those chapels. And this is very problematic for us because, of course, we rejected the new order liturgy, the no, the new mass. And we were um, obtaining these chapels, asking people to contribute um, uh, their their my, money, their time, their efforts to buying or building these chapels and adorning them with uh, you know the altars and statues and everything else we needed as Catholics. Um, and um, yet there was not a provision actually in the articles of incorporation or bylaws forbidding the new mass from being said in these churches. So we actually brought this to the attention of the authorities um, in Europe, and the Econome General at the time actually turned us down and said, no, you cannot add a provision to the Articles of Incorporation or, or the bylaws which would forbid the saying of the new mass in these churches. And that was very troubling to us. So... Um, <clears throat> When Archbishop Lefebvre came to the country, this country here, we actually thought we'd have a meeting with him. Uh, well, the meeting did not go terribly well. I, I wasn't at the meeting myself, but I was around for the aftermath. Because, as it turns out, Monsieur Lefebvre had, had consulted an attorney, uh, you know, even in the process of coming to the meeting. So, um, and... Uh, Unfortunately, I, I think he was. Uh, I think our position was being misrepresented by those around him in Europe, and um, I think we were kind of cast in, in his mind as a bunch of troublemakers. And uh, so, there's a lot more to be said about this. But the problem came down to uh, this: 
that we were eventually basically told to go away, uh, almost literally, prenez votre liberté, uh, take your liberty, you know, it's a nice way of saying go away. <laughs> and um, um, then what followed was uh, notification that there were lawsuits against us to uh, basically bar us from the chapels we've been serving. And that's when things became problematic because um, the easiest thing for us to do at that time would have been to have simply walked away from it all. I mean, after all, we came over as priests to this country, uh, actually newly ordained when we arrived, and uh, we were charged with setting about obtaining chapels for the traditional mass and souls, mostly most important souls, you know, for the traditional mass. And uh, over the few years, uh, I had been ordained only five years by that time, but we'd gained a lot of ground. Uh, chapels were obtained. Um, the chapels were filling up, in some cases overfilling up. So uh, the harvest was plentiful and we needed more laborers. But here, the laborers who were here were being told to leave. And there was, there was no one to replace us. In fact, uh, we understood from uh, people who were attending the chapels that they were told that we could no longer come to them, but that they did not have the priests to send them from Europe either. And uh, so uh, we faced the prospect that the chapels would be pretty much uh, dormant and the people would be, well, they just didn't have the, the priests to send them to continue the masses with them. So even though the easiest thing for us to, uh, would have been to have simply walked away and start over, we wouldn't have had any problem doing that ourselves. We were young and, and raring to go, very eager. But, you know, we had all these people whom we had convinced over the years to contribute to these chapels, and it didn't... We really had to think long and hard before we decided, well, we're just going to walk away from it all and tell these people we're sorry, but we made a mistake. And what we represented to you evidently was not what the society actually stood for. Um, well, at that point, we decided, no, we, we can't do that. We have to actually stand by our word to these people. And... Uh, so uh, the decision was made, uh, kind of collectively, I think we agreed on it, uh, that we really could not just walk out of the people and just uh, vacate the chapels. Mm -hmm. And so uh, now, you know, one can look back and see what water went under the bridge after that and say, well, maybe it would have been better just to have, you know, in light of subsequent events, I mean, legal business is always you know, the courtroom and everything, it's, it's always ugly. And it's, um, so there was a, a price to pay for this. But uh, the, the ultimate uh, resolution of it was, was that uh, uh, courts were deciding, you know, how this should be handled. Um, and, but we did not, I personally was not involved in bringing any of these lawsuits. The, my only involvement was in defending uh, against lawsuits that were brought against the corporations and the chapels and so on that I served with the other priests. 
So I personally wasn't involved in bringing any, any lawsuits about it against anybody. Um, I think there were lawsuits, uh, le there was legal action taken in some cases, though, initiated by, uh, let's say, uh, Father Chicada uh, and Father Kelly at the time, I believe. And, uh, and I believe, my recollection was that, that those lawsuits were initiated because of the of the question of venue, where and how the would it be heard in state court or federal court or whatever? <coughs> Honestly, I wasn't really sure about that. But my recollection is that the whole legal business started when suit was brought against us to prevent us from offering mass anymore for the people in those chapels. So, and there was no one else to do it. Um, I, I do think that there were some there was some legal action started on uh, our initiative um, by the priests that were here. I, I couldn't tell you exactly where and, and what they were, though. But it was not. Uh, it was certainly uh, in response. It was not. Uh, uh, let's shall we say uh, undertaken for the sake of trouble, but more for defense. In any case, the ultimate resolution of it all was this, that there was a settlement. And the settlement called for the priests who were here, um, or I should say the corporations with where the priests were on the board of directors, actually paying for a number of properties, paying the Society of St. Pius X, for a number of the properties and relinquishing the rest. And it was an agreement. And it was an agreement that was settled upon by the authorities in Europe. Uh, the economic general at the time, I think, had, had a bit to do with it. And um, I was not consulted in the settlement. I was only informed. Uh, so I didn't really have any decision-making powers in that situation. But I do know this that nothing was stolen. Nothing was stolen. There was a settlement about uh, about some properties. Um, I think Oyster Bay uh, was uh, one of those that was actually bought and paid for um, so that we would stay there and continue to offer mass there. Um, as I recall, um, I think St. Anne's in, uh, was St. Christ Justice in Martinianus, actually. That was the name of the chapel. That was uh, relinquished to the Society of St. Pius X. Um, I think also the chapel of St. Pius X in Redford, Michigan had to be, uh, again, relinquished there. So uh, the ultimate the ultimate outcome was the settlement called for a handful of chapels uh, remaining within our, when I say our control, I mean the priests who had been serving the people of those years and with whom I had worked, the priests who were shown the door with me, okay? The priests who were actually on the board of directors of the chapels and um, of the corporations. And uh, that uh, to my knowledge, I think everything was paid for at a, at a at an agreed price. Um, 
even Oyster Bay, I, I don't think the Society of St. Pius X really was interested in retaining Oyster Bay anyway. Mm. So I don't think they lost or lamented that. Mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think it's a property that we're really uh, uh, too, um, shall we say, convinced that they wanted in the first place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, in any case, but the, the accusation that properties were, were just stolen from the Society of St. Pius X is not true. Yeah. And one might say, well, why would a priest of the Society of St. Pius X say that was the case? Because these priests who are with the Society of St. Pius X now don't know. They weren't there. Many of them were young, are young, uh, so young, in fact, that some of them were not even alive when Archbishop Lefebvre was, died. God, as I say, God rest his soul. I still offer Mass for him on his birth date and on the day of his death every year. And uh, I have a great devotion to him. I think he's a great hero and a great champion of the faith. Um, and I actually think the position the Society of St. Pius V holds now is actually more representative of Archbishop Lefebvre's true thinking than the Society of St. Pius X as it exists right now. But in any case, I mean, I think we're the ones who are being true to his principles. That's how I see it. But now uh, we could discuss that, <laughs> if they would, but I don't know if they would be willing to. In any case, um, but uh, the, uh, you know, a priest of the Society of St. Pius X, they're saying this now, it's probably because they're, they're, they're going purely by hearsay of events that happened, uh, in, in some cases, even, even before they were born, let alone before they were ordained. So they're, they're not really conversant with the facts of the matter. Mm -hmm. these, these settlements that you spoke of, Father, did they in any way leave the Society of St. Pius X with, with a sour taste in their mouth? Did they, did they not necessarily? Oh, I, I, I think so. I, I think the word was spread around that we had somehow abandoned the Archbishop, quote-unquote. And actually, that's not the case. The case is that... Uh, we were considered to be uh, problematic, and I think shown the, well, I know, we were shown the door. We were told to go. And, you know, it wasn't until later that we actually discovered why. I mean, there were all kinds of uh, explanations as to why this happened, mm -hmm. uh, why the separation happened. Most of the people in the society, lay people in their chapels and clergy, in the society, we're told that we had walked out of the archbishop, we'd abandoned him, uh, we had betrayed him. Uh, the fact is, we objected to certain things that we found very problematic, more than problematic, even very troubling uh, trends in the society, things that were being done by priests in the society that we didn't think Archbishop Lefebvre would support. And uh, as I say, we were told, go, go away. Well, I guess that reaction surprised us because it was so draconian. Um, the fact that Monsieur Lefebvre, uh, on his way down to Oyster Bay, from the seminary in Ridgefield to Oyster Bay, stopped and consulted the, the American lawyer for the Society of St. Pius X uh, at that time, was kind of startling to us that he would do that, thinking he, he came uh, ready for war. Uh, when we were just looking for answers and resolution to some problems, and, um, but we found out later uh, that 
at that time, Monsignor Lefebvre was involved in negotiations with the Vatican. And he was looking for some arrangement for the, in the Vatican to be recognized by the Vatican. And uh, I guess Monsieur Lefebvre must have known that we would not have been happy with that because we simply didn't trust the modernists and did not think that any arrangement they would make would be above board and honorable and, and sincere and honest. But Monsieur Lefebvre, you know, was a member of the Vatican Diplomatic Corps. This was his training in diplomacy. And I think Monsieur Lefebvre thought it was his responsibility to do whatever he could to try to uh, heal whatever rift there was or find some way, some mode of uh, operation. I'm, I'm hesitating to say the word compromise because I don't think it was uh, Archbishop Lefebvre's mind to compromise, and I don't think it's what he intended to do to compromise. But in fact, there came out of that effort uh, that was actually in progress, unbeknownst to us, when all of this was happening. There came out of this effort a protocol which the Vatican authorities signed and which Archbishop Lefebvre signed. And uh, this, this agreement was very damaging to the Society of St. Pius X. When we found out that this this. Uh, this, these negotiations were going on, that's when we understood why we were told to go away. Because it was clear that we would not have supported it. Um, before, during, or after. And in fact, you know the history of that time, you know what happened. That Archbishop Lefebvre signed the protocol, then discovered very, in short order, that those on the in the Vatican, who had drafted it and signed it, were not in good faith. Uh, their objective was to keep the society under their control by means of that protocol, to bring it under their control and to keep it under their control. And Monsieur Lefebvre, um, he, he understood that. He was, not, he was no one's fool he, he, by any means. Uh, he knew who he was dealing with. He was just trying to do what he could in good faith, to try to find a way, I, I believe, you know. Uh, in retrospect, uh, he himself lamented that. He himself repeated it was not entered into in good faith by the modernists. And from that moment on, he was instructing, by the way, he was instructing the, the priests who were in his society of St. Pius X, those in authority, don't try to make an accommodation or a working arrangement with the modernists. The doctrinal questions have to be dealt with first before you can even dream of working with them. That was the lesson that he came away with. Yeah, that sounds like the Society of St. Pius V. And look, yes, it looks, sounds like the Society of St. Pius V. But... And now the leadership of the Society of St. Pius X has done exactly the opposite yeah. of what he admonished them to do. Yeah. And that is, for years they've been trying to work out some kind of an agreement with them, with the Vatican, and saying, well, we'll work on the doctrinal issues afterwards. Whereas Monsignor Lefebvre said, that is, we cannot do that. That's wrong to, 
to, to do that. So, um, in any case, um, you see, there's a, there's a lot that hinges on this question. But when you say, was there kind of, uh, was, there, was there sort of bitterness there on the part of the priests of the society of St. Pius X? Yes, there was a certain bitterness there. I don't see any bitterness on the side of, uh, of our priests coming away with this. We made a decision to resist the attempt to, you know, uh, exclude us from the chapels because that was excluding us from the congregations and the souls when they didn't have anyone else to turn to at the time. Um, but, um, you know, this, this myth that they perpetuated to this day that we somehow stole the property and abandoned Monsieur Lefebvre is actually quite the opposite of the truth. It's, it's actually the opposite of the truth. Mm-hmm. But I guess they feel they have to, they have to believe that. Um, uh, I guess, for some reason, because it sort of legitimizes what was done mm-hmm. and uh, what, they're, what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank, so. you, uh, thank you for at least attempting to clear that up, Father. I know it's a very... Sure. Well, Tom, I, I matter, hope there's... it is of some help to yeah. somebody. I mean, there, it might engender further questions, and people should ask the questions. We, yeah. I welcome the questions, and okay. uh, they shouldn't be afraid to ask them. Great. Absolutely. All right, uh, then moving on, Father, um, Very, uh, <clears throat> there's been some very interesting uh, articles posted on the uh, Call Me Jorge blog, which you and I are, are both very, very familiar with, and uh, they've been causing quite a stir. Uh, so we'd like to just, just touch on those, Father, and some of the information in there. It's um, concerning the, this Gnostic bishop, uh, really, I, I think you, you called him almost the the. the Pope of the, the Gnostic Church or well, something. Well, essentially, I think if they have one, uh, he would be it. Yeah, the, the Stephen Huller and, yeah, and also... Stephen, um, Stephen Huller. And, and also uh, his uh, his connection with, with uh, the, as I said, the alleged traditional Catholic Charles Coulomb and their, even their connection with the St. Benedict Center and the, the Feniites and also their um, the, this this occult affiliation that, that has apparently been exposed. So, Father, what, what's your reaction to, to all of this? Well, the, the, uh, the author of the, um, I guess you'd call it author or the director, whoever it is, of this web, website, blog, the, the blog, I guess it is, right. uh, Call Me Jorge, which has been along for, around for quite a while, has, uh, is quite a researcher, and he's had information for some time. But hasn't really published it. But now I understand this question is becoming quite a cause to cause celebre on the uh, traditional Catholic sites, you know, because it's become known more and more that uh, Charles Coulomb, a rather uh, well-known traditional Catholic speaker and writer, right, has some very deep occult connections, and. Um, and I guess he may not be the only one. Um, and this is very troubling. I, I'd known about this for some time. <coughs> Never really was involved that much with Charles Coulomb, but I see he is very much involved, and pe- people know of him. And um, just recently, I've come into contact with people who have been reading his books and you know, hearing his speeches and so on. And I realize... You know, if he's a representative of traditional Catholicism, then there's something gravely wrong here, yeah. because uh, it's his occult connections go very deep. He's a, a very close friend of this Stefan uh, 
Stefan Huller, uh, who is a, a bishop. He styles himself a bishop of the Gnostic Church, right? He, what does it say here? Stefan A. Huller, Taus Stephanus, Gnostic bishop. And, uh, and uh, actually, uh, Charles Coulomb has actually appeared with him for tarot card readings, notably about the, the annual prospects for our country and what, what the tarot cards prognosticate about the future of our country. And Charles Coulomb is, is the, the, the featured person with this Stefan Gnostic bishop um, in reading the tarot cards and commenting on the tarot cards. And this now, is actually, actually on video, or at least audio. Oh, oh yes, we can go online and actually see, see the two of them together, uh, appearing together year by year, reading these tarot cards. And, um, and, and this uh, Huller uh, says that this is divin divination. This is actual divination. Divination is a mortal sin against the first commandment. Condemned by the first commandment of the Catholic Church. Now, one might say, well, well, gee, how can a traditional Catholic do that? And then you realize, if you know Gnostic teaching, you'd see that if the traditional Catholic is a Gnostic or believes in Gnosticism, he has no problem with that. And I will get, I'll explain why in just a minute. But when you're talking Gnosticism, I mean, this man's a Gnostic bishop, right? He is actually the the man in charge of the Gnostic archive. Gnosis, gnosis.org is the website where he has all this information on the Gnostic church. And uh, there's an enormous amount of information on Gnosticism. It's actually what they're calling neo-Gnosticism, okay? <laughs> but, you know, when you want to talk about paganism, you call it neo-paganism because it makes it sound... Like it's something kind of updated in modern and uh, reformed Gnosticism or reformed uh, paganism. But actually, it's Gnosticism and it's paganism. It's just the same old stuff with the same old principles, uh, reincarnated, so to speak, uh, in jeans and, uh, and a t shirt. Now, um, it's, it's helpful to know how deeply occultic all this is. Uh, Gnosticism goes back, you know, even before our Lord himself came into the world. Uh, the teaching of Manes, that's where you get the word, the name of the Manichaeans, which held the St. Augustine in thrall for a while. It actually was representing this whole idea. It was, it's an ancient occult belief. Hard to say whether, you know, where you draw the line between philosophy or religion. It's actually both. It's kind of a religious philosophy or a philosophical religion. The fundamental belief is that the world was created by an evil god called the Demiurge, who is not the true god. He's a false god. He himself emanated from God and is kind of a lesser, lesser god, you might say with many flaws, and he created this world, and we are a reflection of him with all of our flaws. <coughs> and this Demiurge, having created this world, and you and I, uh, you and me with it, wants to keep us in, in subjection to this world, 
even though we have within us a kind of divine spark. So we also contain a bit of divinity within us. And uh, this tells you what the gnosis is, that gnosis, the knowledge that will liberate us, is to acknowledge our own divinity and refuse to kowtow to this evil creator of this fallen world. Uh, the Gnostics believe that the evil in this world is not because of sin. It's because of the flaws of the Creator. It's not due to human beings. It's nothing you and I've done. We're the victims of an evil Creator who has imprisoned us and our divine spark in this world and wants to keep us subservient. You read some of this Gnostic literature, and they make no bones about it. The, they even refer to the Genesis myth that Adam and Eve sinned. And that's why there's evil in the world. Whereas it's the evil creator who did this to us. Notice, by the way, that when, when Eve uh, was being tempted by Lucifer, Lucifer was one of these eons who was trying to bring to us the message of our own divinity. He was trying to save us when he tempted Eve. What did he say to Eve? Read in the book of Genesis, okay? Why did God forbid you to eat of the tree of the knowledge, gnosis, of good and evil? Well, God told us that if we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will we'll die to death. What was Lucifer, the light carrier, the light bearer, who wanted to bring light into the world and knowledge to reveal to us our own divine, divine spark? What did he say to Eve? He said, no, but God knows. The creator God knows that if you eat of that knowledge of the, the tree and, and consume that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be as God. You will know good and evil. So what he's saying to her is, you are God. And if you eat of the, that fruit, you will know that you are God. This is what the evil creator God is afraid of. That you will discover that you are God. Not him. You. And you will be free of him. This was the message, see. The Gnostics actually interpret that that way. And... Uh, when I talk about, I'm talking about Kabbalistic Gnosticism, uh, the Jewish Kabbal, the Jewish Gnosticism. I'm even talking to some extent about the Mormon, Mormon Kabbalism and Mormon Gnosticism. And there might be Mormons out there who would say, that's outrageous. How could you say such a horrible thing? Well, I would say, do this. I would tell every Mormon who hears this to go to the... The King Follett Sermon. The King Follett Sermon. A sermon given by, by Joseph Smith at the funeral for his friend King Follett. And read and get through the first part of it where he talks about how he's in danger of being put to death because of what he's revealing. And get to the part of that sermon. It's fairly early on, although not right at the beginning, where he starts talking about the true interpretation of Genesis. 
and you find that that foundational document of Mormonism, of Joseph Smith himself, which was transcribed by five scribes who were taking this down, is exactly Jewish Kabbalism and Gnosticism. It's exactly what it is. The divinity in each one of us. The gods, the gods, plural, of Genesis, right? And we are the ones who are descended from those gods. And the divine spark is within us, see? It all comes down to, again, Gnosticism. Well, there's a man who styled himself the most wicked man alive. You know his name, Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley crowed that he was the wickedest man alive. He was a man who was very deep into Gnosticism. He actually invented the telema, the will, the idea that there is one commandment, and that is do as you will as long as you harm no one else. Do your own will. This is the one moral imperative for him. He wrote the Gnostic Mass. Aleister Crowley wrote the Gnostic Mass for the Ordo, Ordo Templi Orientis, the OTO. He wrote their Gnostic Mass for him, which was supposed to be a knockoff of the, well, the basically Orthodox liturgy and the Catholic liturgy, the traditional, the traditional Catholic Mass in Latin. And um, basically, he wrote it for the religious wing of the Order of the Temple of the, the Orient, Oriental Temple, or the Temple of the East, what he called the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica, the, the Catholic Gnostic Church. And um, if you read that, the Gnostic Mass, you see that it is a, a parody, a mockery of the true Catholic liturgy, the traditional Mass. So the idea that they can bring together Gnosticism and Catholicism is an old idea. When you hear Charles Coulomb doing just that today, you realize this man is actually involved in the occult. <clears throat> and he is involved in an effort that has been going on literally for centuries, from the very earliest centuries when the Gnostics tried to devour Christianity with their false gospels, the gospel of St. Thomas and all the rest, with their Gnostic literature, they were trying to foist off as the work of the apostles. And he's involved in the same thing, evidently. I mean, how, how else can you interpret what he's doing here? Now, Tom, I think it's very important to drive this point home because what has come to light in all this is that there are those who style themselves traditional Catholics who are very much involved in all this stuff, and they're being drawn into it, and there's a great danger here. In fact, I came across a site called Coriezu Sacratissimum, Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, and uh, the, uh, the author of this site is offering meditations on the tarot cards and the Vatican, and talking about how his belief in the occult and the tarot cards brought him into the into the into the faith, made a Catholic out of him, and he's even pr presenting this idea that John Paul II favored the tarot cards. And uh, you know something? I know it sounds outrageous, but the fact is, 
Gnosticism and modernism are bedfellows. Gnosticism and modernism go perfectly together. And evidently these occultists see that. They see that modernism is very much open to their, their Gnosticism and their occultic ideas because they're both based on one's own religious experience and making that the center of your faith, your own personal religious experience. That's your divine revelation. Am I making this up? No. I'm actually quoting. I'm quoting none other than Bishop Stefan Heller, the great friend of Charles Coulomb, with whom he does his tarot card readings, publicly, openly, uh, accessible to anybody in the world on the internet, even now. Now, this uh, Stefan Holler has, on his Gnosti the Gnosis Archive site, entered a little essay of his own on the Gnostic worldview, a brief summary of Gnosticism. That is worth reading. I would say, I mean, it's, it's with a certain reluctance that I recommend any Catholic or anyone of any kind go in to, uh, to read this on the Gnosis archive at gnosis.org and the Gnostic worldview. But if anybody has any doubt that we're dealing with the occult, in Gnosticism, and it has no place in traditional Catholicism or in traditional Catholics, then all they have to do is go and read this, this Gnostic worldview, a brief summary of Gnosticism. And if you'll bear with me a little bit longer, I'm not going to read this word for word, but I will read uh, sections of it. He starts out by saying, Gnosticism is the teaching based on Gnosis, the knowledge of transcendence arrived at by way of interior intuitive means. <clears throat> Anybody who's read the encyclical condemning the errors of the modernists of St. Pius X understands the significance of what that means. Finding divinity within you. Although Gnosticism thus rests on personal religious experience, exactly what St. Pius X is the basis for modernism. It is a mistake to assume all such experience results in Gnostic recognitions. It is nearer the truth to say that Gnosticism expresses a specific religious experience. An experience that does not lend itself to the language of theology or philosophy. The language of Gnostic experience expresses itself in mythology, in myth. And you see... The Gnostics of the present day in the modern church, the modernists, promoting indigenous religions and all their myths, all their mythology. That's not an accident. Read what the man says. It's the language of mythology coming down through the centuries that is the language of Gnosticism. But this myth, he says, has a deeper meaning than theology or philosophy. It goes beyond theology. It goes beyond philosophy. He says the Gnostic myths express themselves in their distinctly, distinctively poetic and imaginative language. I mean, you might as well be reading Francis. You might as well be reading his, uh, his writing on the Amazonian Synod. Sounds like it's taken directly from there. But this is the key here. He goes on to the question of the cosmos. Where did the universe, where did the world come from? He says, all religions recognize that the world is flawed. 
But he says the Gnostics alone realize that the world is flawed because it was created that way. It was created in a flawed manner, and it was created by a flawed false god. It's not our doing, it's the creator's doing. He says, we live as strangers in a world that is flawed and absurd. You know what? I make these connections. I'm sure there are others making these connections too. This is the very basis of existentialism, the whole philosophy. I mean, we see a convergence of these ideas with Soren Kierkegaard and, and uh, we have Sartre and all that, and they all talk about this, this finding redemption by creating yourself because you live in a flawed, absurd world. This is where existentialism starts. It starts from the Gnostic worldview. And it is really in control of the minds of our young people because this is what they're being taught in college. You have to create yourself. You have to make your own world out of your own experience. Because you live in a flawed, absurd world. You have to give it meaning. Your own personal meaning. So he says, the Genesis myth really shows us that the creator is the one who is flawed. It is this half-maker of a demiurge, a false god, that is responsible for the world we live in and all the evil that is here. It's a malignant system, he says. And he says that Gnosticism, of all the religions, gives the most sensible explanation as to how this is so. He talks about there being a true God who is absolutely transcendent and completely unknown to this world. Read Pashendi, read St. Pius X, talking about the divine which is total beyond this world and unknowable to the world. That's what he says there. And learning to find God in your own religious experience. <laughs> he said, the God who created this world is a debased manifestation, the false or creator God. In the Gnostic view, he says, there is a true ultimate and transcendent God who is beyond all created universes and who never created anything in the sense in which the world, the word created is ordinarily understood. While this true God did not fashion or create anything, he or it emanated or brought forth from within himself the substance of all there is in all the worlds. It kind of oozed out of him. Think of um, Aristotelian, <coughs> the idea of the monos. Think of the emanation that, that all that exists is actually an emanation out of the one, out of, of the out of the one God. It's all, in a sense, like a, an ink spot that spreads out farther and farther from its source, creation. And he says that there are intermediates between us and the true God, and these are the eons. And these eons are trying to save us. And how are they trying to save us? They're not saving us from sin. They're saving us from our ignorance of the fact that we are God, that we are divine beings ourselves. They're trying to save us by bringing us the knowledge. Jesus, he says, was one of them. In that sense, Lucifer was one of us too. 
trying to bring us a knowledge of ourselves. They say that Seth was one of them, the third son of Abraham. They say that Manes, this uh, uh, founder of Manichaeism, right, was one of them. And in a sense, I mean, he even refers to the psychology of Carl Gustav Jung, who said, by the way, well, I'll get into that in a moment, but he was a darling. Jung was a darling of the Novus Ordo. When it first, the changes first came in, we were hearing suddenly from our nuns and our priests about the philosophy of Carl Gustav Jung. And you wonder, well, where did that come from? How did that become matters of Catholic faith? He's a Gnostic. He's a Gnostic. Jung claimed to be channeling an ancient Gnostic bard, Bartizanes. He claimed to be in touch with the occult and channeling for this, for this lost soul of, of uh, Manichaeism from ancient times in his philosophy. And, and yet this is what is being handed to us by the Novus Ordo as new wisdom now. Anyway, the, the Gnosticism was always considered dualism because it considered to be in the world evil, the creation of an evil renegade god, false god, and ourselves being like the divine, divine spark whom he buried in the world here and still holds captive here. So we have the material component and we have the spiritual component, as he calls it. And that gives, he says, to a rise of dualism. Sometimes Gnosticism is considered dualism too because it talks about a true God who is a good God and an evil God who kind of oozed out of him. And um, so there's like this duality here of these good God and an evil God and they're kind of opposed to each other. The question who is going to win? The, the good God sends us these eons to tell us that we are true sparks of God and to stop allowing ourselves to be imprisoned here in this evil world. But the evil God has archons on his side, the rulers, the rulers of this world, who are trying to keep us imprisoned here, you know, trying to keep us ignorant of our true divinity here. Now, they might say, well, if you die, then your spark escapes. But no, it doesn't, because unless you know you are a divine being, you can't escape. You're just going to be reincarnated back into this world. And you're going to take your divine spark and, in a sense, reinvest it in the world and be imprisoned here in the world again. The only way you can escape, really, is by going through a process. The process is uh, going from being a material being, someone who thinks in terms of material things, and then rising above that and becoming what they refer to as an ethical religious being. That's where you become religious, you follow religion, you follow moral laws. But you're not free yet, you see, because even there, you escape materialism, you recognize you have a spirit in you, but you are still subject to the evil God because you're following his moral commandments. And you consider that you yourself bound by religion, religious practice. You still have to escape that because that too is the work of the evil God, to bind you by the power of his commandments and moral principles. 
and rules. No, the only way you can achieve spiritual freedom is by casting off that religion, casting off moral principles, and acknowledging you are free of the dictates of the evil God who's imprisoned you here. You are divine. You are a divine being. You are not subject to him and his commandments. This is what the Cathar, this is what the Albigensians said. They were Gnostics of the 1200s. This is why the church had to stop this, because they were promoting not only this heresy, this apostasy, that you are God, you are the divine being, and you have to cast off all subservience to the creator God by refusing to obey his commandments. The, the Gnostics actually consider the Cathars, or the Albigensians to be martyrs who died for their true Gnostic faith by trying to convince human beings that they are God. Okay? And they were persecuted by the religious by the religious ones who obeyed the commandments. That's the Catholics, of course. Eh? By the way, have you ever heard anybody say, I'm spiritual, not religious? Oh, yeah. I'm spiritual, not religious. It's exactly the point here. No. Can't be religious, following the rules, following commandments. You are God, be spiritual. Now, it's only those who consider themselves <clears throat> spiritual, not religious, they are ready to leave this world as gods. They are ready to uh, finally uh, achieve their ultimate destiny to return to their divinity and be liberated from this prison world of the evil God of his commandments. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm actually just giving you in, in brief form, believe it or not, uh, what this uh, Stefan Heller is saying, Hiller, about the evolution of consciousness and the Gnostics knew it long before the modern philosophers had developed this. But this is the idea. And um, so they, they say there are these messengers of light who come into the world to try to tell us that we, in fact, are God and stop kowtowing to the evil creator God and his commandments. One of those messengers of light was none less than Jesus himself. The Gnostics recognized him as this messenger of light. Lucifer was the light carrier too. They also recognize him as one of these messengers of light. Now, they, they talk about these heletic materialists. They're the lowest form of human life there is right now. Then you have the psychic disciplinarians. That's us because we're religious and we obey commandments. But we have to become pneumatic spiritual. And that means recognizing that we are God. We are divine. I'm going to try to wrap this up, much to everyone's relief, I'm sure. What is the destiny? We have to break out of this cycle of rebirths, of reincarnation. We have to break out of that. In one of these, uh, by the way, in one of these um, uh, seances, I would have to say, where Stefan uh, Hiller and Charles Coulomb are reading the tarot cards, they actually talk about reincarnation. The whole idea of reincarnation comes up in, in, the, in the, the, between the two of them. Curious one. And uh, here Heller says, uh, yes, you have to be, uh, have a gun to go this cycle of rebirths until you recognize that you are divine. Uh, you have the spark of the divine in you. He goes into the psychological connection and he talks about 
How Modern Psychology, a la Carl Gustav Jung, and the religion of Gnosticism actually kind of unite. They, they form a kind of alliance between the two, that they go together. Gnostic psychology said a Gnostic religion are not exclusive of one another, but they complement it together. They go together. So much of the modern psychology is Gnostic thought right now, is Gnostic belief. Uh, as much of the modern philosophy is Gnostic belief. So it is, it is actually all supportive of the Gnostic religion. This is where we're going. This is where the new world religion is going to come from. Right here. It's Gnosticism. And this is going to grow out of modernism. Modernism is going to bring all of this together. He says, the Gnosis is undoubtedly an experience based not in concepts and precepts, but the sensibility of the heart. You might as well be quoting modernists. It's the experience of the Gnosis, the experience of your own divine, divine spark. It's a, the Gnostic worldview he extends again and again is experiential, experiential. The experience of Gnosis. You have to stress this because modernism is exactly that. It is based upon experience and especially emotional experience. That is the heart of, of a modernist faith, and it's at the root of modernism, of Gnosticism. Notice one thing as we read through his modernist worldview is the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. He talks about the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. What does that sound like? The spirit, the spirit, the spirit. Right? Modernism. It sounds like modernism. I think about the spirit. The spirit is speaking to you. Not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, this is definitely not, not the Holy Ghost. No, no doubt about it. It's the spirit of Crowley. Crowley. It's the spirit of Bartisanus. It's the spirit of Jung that's speaking through Gnosticism today. And unfortunately, it is also the spirit of Francis, yeah. who is the poster child of modernism. Mm -hmm. Father, this is, uh, this is all incredible, literally. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure if you saw, but there was uh, actually a video in relation to all of this where apparently uh, Charles Coulomb was uh, confronted with, with this question. He was asked by a very favorable interviewer uh, if, in fact, he was an occultist. Um, Charles Coulomb totally laughs off the question. I, I believe, if I may paraphrase his response, just, just to illustrate, uh, he, uh, Charles Coulomb says, it depends on what your definition of occultist is. Okay. It depends on there what you are. mean by occultist. And he says, if by occultist you mean someone who likes cheese, then, then yes, I am guilty. Totally laughs off the question, mm. does not answer, goes on an entirely different um, 15, 20-minute long tangent, does not answer the question at all, at all whatsoever. Mm. Should, you know, there, there are, like, as you said, very well-known, very popular, very prominent, supposedly traditional Catholic author. How should Catholics feel uh, when well, all this comes to light? The Catholic Church defines occultist defines occultism. The Catholic Church explains what, what the meaning of the first commandment is and what it forbids. And what it forbids is the occult and the practice of the occult. Divination is one of the practice of the occult. He's openly, publicly, not only involved in it, he's a principal in the very process of divination. So he can laugh it off and dismiss it all he wants, but the fact is, 
Uh, I think that um, you, know, you could ask any one of them, are you an occultist? And they would have the same reaction. It all depends on the definition of is, right? <laughs> to quote a very famous ex-president yes. of the United States of America. But the occult is what it is. It's, it's well-defined. We know what it is, and this is it. Gnosticism is the occult. Uh, the practice of divination, the use of tarot cards, and so on, they are the practice of the occult. And this is what Charles Coulomb is doing. Whether he, whether he really is willing to acknowledge it or not, whether he's willing to acknowledge it to himself, I don't know. But the record speaks for itself. It is what it is. This is the occult. And the fact that this has an influence in the minds and, and hearts of traditional Catholics is, is to me unspeakably grave. It's very serious. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's just intolerable. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have to insist that this, this is not right. Father, doesn't this show just the, the evil and the danger of modernism where, like you said, this modernism, occultism, and the Gnosticism, they're all bedfellows. And mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's just, it's, I think it's incredibly telling that even with, when all this information comes to light, that Charles Coulomb can still be a perfectly uh, Catholic in good standing with, with the Novus Ordo, um, no ramifications whatsoever. Well, I mean, look, you ask a modernist, do you believe in the Immaculate Session? The modernists would, without hesitation, say, yeah, I believe in the Immaculate session. And, but then you ask, well, what do you mean by that? You know, how, do, how do you define that? Well, the modernists might say, well, you know, there's no such thing as original sin, so everybody's immaculately conceived, right? So, of course, I believe in the Immaculate Conception. Or they'll give you some, some definition that is not the Catholic understanding. But this is the problem. They will use the same words, but they don't mean the same thing. And it, it, it kind of runs cover. It works for them because it disguises them for who they really are and what they really believe and what they don't believe. And the same with the occultists. They, can, they do the same thing. Uh, they'll use the same language. They'll even talk about sacraments and they'll talk about holy and they'll use you know, all the language. But they don't mean the same thing that we do. Quite the contrary. Uh, so it can be very deceptive. Pius X talking about modernism. He talks about them, the modernists using the, the same language, but they don't mean the same thing. They don't even mean the same thing by the word faith. They've redefined the word faith itself. So this is a very serious problem here, and we have to be very much on guard against this um, and, and insist that, um, uh, you know, when, when Pius X wrote his oath against modernism, he wrote very specifically what had to be said in such a way that they can't get around it. They can't explain it away. When the Arian heretics at the Council of Nicaea wanted to be able to sign the document without being detected, what did they do? They added a little iota, right? A little i, iota, so substitute the word homo usios, that Christ is of the same substance as the Father, meaning he's divine, the divine being, to homo eusios, meaning he's similar to the Father, right? And so this is their subterfuge. This is their way of, of flying under the radar, the Catholic radar, and getting away with murder of the faith, really. And this is what occultists have always done, those who deny the divinity of Christ, those who wanted to make Christ nothing but an emanation from God, but less than God, an eon, an eon, right, one of these emissaries or, or messengers of light of God, 
the error all goes back to the same thing, you know. Um, the same fundamental error behind it all, and it is Gnosticism in its various forms. And uh, the church has learned from very early times you have to hold them to explain what they mean because they will try to use words to disguise their meaning. For most people, words are meant to reveal their minds and what they're thinking. For the modernists, the words are, and Gnostics, words are used to conceal their true meaning, right? Um, and the church learned very early on that this is the case with them. And we cannot let them just pass because they say, uh, they use the same words, but they don't mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Honorius I, the Pope, you know, he, he wanted to have an ambiguous statement of faith so everybody could sign the same document and get away with it. The church condemned him, excommunicated him after he died, excommunicated him uh, for failing to defend the faith because he was willing to submit to the subterfuge of the, of the heretics, Gnostics, and the modernists of that day. We cannot let that happen to us today because they would rob us of our faith and substitute it with an anti-faith, modernism, Gnosti another form of Gnosticism is all it is. You know, when you read the, the writings of some of these people, you find they say, they will tell you, that yes, in the Catholic Church, the, the, there are Christian teachings. There are Christian teachings in the Catholic Church. There are the teachings of Christ. The teachings of Christ are in the Catholic Church. And you think, well, that's good enough for me. That sounds really good. You know, they're saying that. Gee, but then you think, wait a minute, what are they not saying? Remember, even the even even Vatican II said that the that Christianity, the teachings of Christ, subsist. Mm -hmm. The true church subsists in the Catholic Church, which is not the same as saying the Catholic Church is the one true church. It's just that the character of the true of the true Church of Christ subsists in, can be found in the Catholic Church. That's not denying it can be also found in other churches, though, too. And so you read these authors and they say, yes, the teachings of, church, of Christ can be found in the Catholic Church. But you see, their point is, the teachings of Christ can be found in all the different. They all maintain truths of Christ. Well, this is the essence of ecumenism, isn't it? This is the essence of modernist ecumenism. Modernism is Gnosticism. It's the mon modern modernism is the Gnosticism of the present day, yeah. and it is it is um, gained its access uh, into the Church of God and is trying to do everything it can to um, turn that into a vehicle for this one world religion, which will be Gnosticism. Man discovers his own divinity. Lord Maitreya will come of Theosophists, the great darling of the Theosophists. Lord Maitreya will come, and his teaching, he will teach mankind that it is divine. That's what they say. That's what they're aiming for. It's all part of this, this big picture here. We cannot allow it to speak for traditional Catholicism or pretend to. Uh, it'll be the ruination of all true faith as... St. Pius X said of modernism, it will be the ru ruination of all true faith and the ruination of all true religion.
That's what he said. It was encyclical against modernism. So anyway, but we, so, you know, I know we've kind of uh, waxed eloquent, I should say, <laughs> uh, or prolific or whatever. We waxed rather than waned on the subject. But you had a couple of other questions. I wonder if we could quickly get to that. Yes, yeah. Father, just, just very briefly, I thought um, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the, the saint whose feast day is today, St. Hermenegild. Um, very beautiful story. I just wonder if you could touch on this very briefly. We encourage all of our viewers to uh, to read. We have on our website the uh, Father Butler's excerpts uh, of his life. Um, but one of our, our viewers uh, wrote in, or asked commenting on, on his life story, where just, just very briefly, I, I believe he was born into uh, an Aryan family. His, his father, mm -hmm. his brother, his family were all Aryans. And uh, I believe his, he married a, a traditional Catholic uh, who converted him to the, to the faith. And he, uh, obviously his, his father was not a fan of this. He was actually put in prison. And while in prison, his father sent an Aryan bishop uh, to him there with a what St. Gregory, I believe, terms a, a sacrilegiously consecrated host, offered this host to him. St. Uh, Hermenegild actually drove this Arian bishop out, out, out of, out of the, the prison, out of the dungeon. Um, could this perhaps be a, a model for us today, Father? With well, it's something we have to realize. We cannot compromise with, wrong, with false faith. We cannot yeah. compromise with these things. And it kind of follows up well with what we were just talking about. Yes, you exactly. cannot compromise. Yeah. And he would not compromise. Yeah. I mean, this was, it was in the year 579 that he actually broke with his father in terms of this, this, this Aryan faith that he had and uh, accepted the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ as being the true Son of God. It was under the influence of a bishop, Leonidas, who was a right. Catholic bishop there. Right. And, um, you know, uh, Hermenegild's father persecuted the Catholic bishop, imprisoned Hermenegild, uh, chained him up by the throat and by the, by the wrists and kept him in a dungeon. And finally on Easter uh, Sunday, sent an Arian bishop down to give him communion thinking he would break down his resolve or his desire to receive communion, but he knew that this was sacrilegiously consecrated by a, a minister of a false faith. And so he would not, uh, even though he was chained up down there, he succeeded in, in driving that fake bishop out, who then reported back to the father, and the father was filled with rage against Hermenegild and sent soldiers to kill him right then and there, right there in the prison. And they actually took an axe and they, they, they just chopped him, they just right into his skull. Um, they, they didn't hesitate at all, you know, to just bury the head of that axe in his skull to kill him. Because his father was so enraged. And, uh, but he would not compromise his faith for any reason, even under those circumstances. And um, one might say, well, you know, he was an Arian bishop, so he might have been validly consecrated, so that might have been the Blessed Sacrament, so mm -hmm. shouldn't he just have gone ahead and received the host because it was validly consecrated? Hermenegild knew that it's the integrity of the faith that is at stake here, and you can't compromise on that. So he died a martyr. The modern, the world tries to make it sound as though he rebelled against his father and he was kind of a, an insurrectionist against his father, and that's why his father had to imprison him. But that's what the world tries to say. Anything about facing the fact that he was true to the true faith. <clears throat> the aftermath was interesting because his father eventually realized his mistake, repented of it, but not to the point where he would change his ways because he was afraid of the, of the populace. They were Visigoths. 
Okay, they themselves had come to Spain as invaders, barbarian invaders. They themselves would be invaded by the Vandals later on, okay? And, um, but during this period of time in the 6th century, um, they were subject to the Arian heresy, unfortunately. And um, the, um, the father of, of Hermenegild recognized that Hermenegild was right in his faith, but he didn't have the courage to oppose his people. However, Rekered, Rekered was the younger brother of Hermenegild. And uh, before um, the father died, he commended his son Rekered to the direction of the same Bishop Leonidas, who had converted the elder son. And it was under the direction of Leonidas that uh, Rekered was received into the Catholic Church, succeeded his father as the king, and that was the beginning of the turning, uh, then, of the uh, Arian Visigoths in Spain to the Catholic faith. So, Hermenegild actually triumphed, even in the process of giving his life, he triumphed. Often that's the case, the martyrs give their lives, and their, the lives are the price of the graces necessary for the ultimate triumph of their faith and their Lord. So, it's a beautiful, uh, a powerful um, story for us today absolutely that um victory is within our grasp it's a matter of being faithful and being willing to make whatever sacrifices god asks of us absolutely well father thank you for uh everything tonight we got through a lot we covered a lot of ground and uh, answered a lot of questions so thank well, you well i hope so tom thank you i appreciate everyone's patience for this it's a big topic but it's very very topical today right. and uh thanks be to god we can see it for what it really is Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.